Awesome. Very good.
We're going to move everybody as close to the front as we can, and we're going to pack them in a little bit uh, more tonight, just so we're a little bit closer. Uh, John would appreciate that, um, and then also just so he can see your faces a little bit better. He said this is probably one of the most beautiful audiences he's ever seen, and it's a pity that he can't see their faces. Oh, you didn't say that. I said that. Okay. So just come on, move forward. We'll see how many are here. and You don't have to, like, pack in, but just get a little bit closer. Um, we have these wonderful seats in the front, so this, these are like the best seats there are, the best seats in the house. I think, I think we will go ahead and, and get started. Um, so glad that you're here uh, tonight. So glad to have John here this week and, and the ministry that the Holy Spirit has given him. And so we're, we're so grateful that you're here. Um, we also realize that tonight there could be some sensitivities with some of the topics we're talking about, but uh, we don't want those to uh, shy us away from what the Holy Spirit has for us. And we know that the Holy Spirit wants to bring healing in our lives. So I want to share uh, just a verse with you before we pray and we get started for tonight. In Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 5, it says this. It says, hope, and who is our hope? Okay, so I know you know that answer. It's totally biblical to cry out the name of Jesus. So I'll say that again. Who is our hope? Jesus. Okay, who is our hope? Jesus. Jesus does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we start with that verse tonight is because tonight we want to proclaim the victory that God has promised us through the blood of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So while we're here this week, and while John is here, we want to give the Holy Spirit permission to go in the very depths of our hearts through the blood of Jesus. And all of us have areas in our lives that we're broken, and there's heaviness, and we want it through the Holy Spirit just for him to allow us to let go of that pain and lay it on the altar of Christ. That's what God wants to do tonight but we just have to let him do that. So we're going to pray for anointing of the Holy Spirit, for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ, and that for all of us to be here, that, that uh, the Holy Spirit would just anoint John and speak through John, and that we would be able to hear and listen and see with our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears so that the Holy Spirit can do a great work within us. So let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity that you have granted us to come together into this place and worship you. We enter into the throne room right now through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, for the security of our eternal salvation, and for the precious gift of your Holy Spirit. We come before you right now and we just ask right now in the name of Jesus, we welcome you 
We welcome your Holy Spirit, dear Father. We pray that you would just fill this sanctuary with the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just fall upon John in a heavy way. And when we say that, we mean it in the right way. That you would just anoint his words. That you would just anoint his heart. And that you would speak through John. We also just pray, Lord, that as we are here and listening and, and following the scriptures and taking notes, Lord, that as the Holy Spirit is speaking through John, that you would allow us to hear through the Holy Spirit what it is that you have for each and every one of us to apply to our hearts, to help us apply your word to our life. We pray for each and every person who's listening right now on the internet or watching on cable or, or is going to tune in later at a different time and, and, down and look at the, the stuff that's on the computer. We pray that through this message that the Holy Spirit would just anoint you and would lead you to the foot of the cross where you could experience freedom and healing and victory in your life. That the Holy Spirit would reveal joy and peace where there once was brokenness and heaviness and this overwhelming feeling. Lord, that is what we claim. That is what we proclaim through the blood of Jesus Christ. We also just pray in the name of Jesus that any attitude, any emotion, any spirit that is not of you that would come against us right now, we just bind them and rebuke them in the name of Jesus. We give you this time. We ask for your Holy Spirit to come in such a way that you and you only, Jesus, would be glorified. And we just pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's children said, Amen. Why don't you stand with me this evening and let's sing. Um, God, I've chosen some older songs so that hopefully we all know them. I sing praises. I sing praises to your name, oh Lord, praises to your name, oh Lord, for your name is great and greatly to be
take it to you in prayer and you release us from those chains that bind us. We give you honor, praise, and glory tonight, Jesus. And we ask now for attentive hearts and minds as we come to you and hear from you through your servant, John. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for coming tonight and sharing in the service tonight. We're going to talk about a little different topic tonight. We're going to talk about moral failure and um, its effect. A number of months ago, my wife's friend was talking to my wife and she said, I have a person that works at the Broadmoor Hotel. It's a five-star hotel in Colorado Springs. And she says, my friend has to record everybody that um, rents a DVD um, in the motel. And she says, when Christian groups come to the five-star hotel, the Broadmoor, the rental of pornographic videos goes up three times higher than if a secular group comes. And she was shocked that that was happening. It's interesting, we have a problem today and that problem basically relates to uh, moral failure, uh, pornographic addiction. We're gonna talk about that after the break. 
We're going to talk about how does moral failure affect families. It's interesting, there are 4.2 million pornographic websites on the internet, which includes 420 million pages. 40 million adults regularly visit internet porn sites. 47% of Christians said pornography is a major problem in their home. 90% of boys and 70% of girls ages 13 and 14 have viewed pornography. Pornography is a $57 billion business annually. There's more money made in pornography than all the major um, athletic programs uh, in the United States. 68 million people look for pornography each day. The average man watches 40 minutes of pornography three times a week to a total of 104 hours per year of pornography. The average age of a boy who first sees pornography is age 11. 90% of men view pornography. This is a major problem today. It's interesting what causes individuals to get involved in moral failure? Forty years ago when I was growing up, uh, you had to go to the major cities to see pornography or to get involved in immoral activity. Uh, it wasn't available. But today, anyone with a, a phone, anyone with a computer can access pornography just by pressing certain buttons. And we have a major problem because pornography can get into anybody's life because everybody has a phone and everybody has a computer. A, a leading um, person made a statement recently, 50% of pastors and 95% of youth pastors are involved in pornography in the United States. That's a scary thing when you hear about that. Why do people get involved in moral failure? What causes that? First of all, an exposure to immoral activity uh, causes people to get involved. Um, people all of a sudden observe a movie, observe something on the internet, and all of a sudden they're hooked into uh, a pattern of moral failure. The second is sexual abuse leads people to get involved in moral failure. 95% of prostitutes have been sexually abused. A third reason is emotional pain, and after the break I'm going to be sharing the fact that many people stay in pornography or stay in a cycle of moral failure because they're trying to cover pain inside their life. Uh, an example of this is 90% of men addicted to pornography are either individuals who have never been loved or who are covering pain inside their heart and as a result of that they keep cycling back to pornography uh, to get a good feeling to release that pain. A fourth reason why people get involved in moral failure is because of a defiant attitude. Nobody's going to tell me what to do and they establish their own moral values. The fifth is wanting to get even. 
The husband commits adultery against his wife. The wife says that I'm going to pay him back. And she commits adultery against him. And the final is personal gratification. I'd like to talk um, in this next section about 17 consequences of what happens when a guy and a gal get involved premaritally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about the fact that God designed for you and I not to defraud one another. The word defraud is a word which means to steal that which doesn't belong to us. It's interesting, 90% of individuals who were born after 1940 have been involved in premarital sex. That percentage is higher coming into my office, about 96-98% of people coming into my office have had premarital sex because I asked them, because that's an issue we have to resolve. But there are 17 consequences if a couple initiates the relationship by having premarital sex. And over the last 10 years, I've had a concern. And so I put together a series called Preparing for Marriage. And it has a workbook uh, with it. And my premise is this. My premise is, I want to help couples, individuals, experience a relationship that's different than starting their relationship by having sex. And so I am making a proposal to young people, and some of you are already married, so it's too late for you. <clears throat> but I'd like to make a proposal that instead of initiating the relationship by having sex, and having these 17 consequences, that we establish what I call an emotional connected relationship. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. And a spiritual connection between a guy who's dating a girl. It looks like this. Two individuals start dating. And three, four months after they start dating, the guy says to the girl, can you tell me what your deepest emotional need is? And a girl says, I just wish someone would give me attention. Or I would like for someone to cherish me. And the guy says, we're not going to be engaged until I can meet that emotional need in your heart. There's nothing sexual about it. It relates to the guy seeing if he can care about her deepest need. And then the girl turns to the guy and says, what's your deepest need? Now, everybody, including all of us as adults, have an emotional need. And if you understand that emotional need and somebody starts caring about it, you automatically open your heart to that person. That's what I call emotional connection. Then we initiate what I call spiritual connection, where two people read the Bible, pray together, connect spiritually together, so that they're connecting with God in their relationship and they're connecting with each other. We started this about four years ago, and we started taking couples through this process. What we found is couples that connected emotionally were on honeymoons in their marriage relationship two years after their wedding, whereas couples that were premaritally involved within two weeks after their marriage, their relationship totally shut down. Why? Because the foundation of their relationship was emotional connection. 
and spiritual connection. And this foundation to their marriage goes 60 years into the future. That becomes a foundation of their relationship. Then they get married and they initiate the physical relationship. They have sex after marriage instead of before. What happens is instead of all the consequences we're going to talk about, a couple experiences an emotional connection and caring about each other. Now when couples come to me for marriage counseling, most couples do not know how to care about each other's hearts. Most individuals don't know how to care about the emotional pain inside their spouse. Earlier in this session, I shared the fact that everybody has a core emotional need. Everybody has pain inside their heart. And you can ask anybody, could you put in three words what your deepest pain is and they can tell you that. Now young people dating each other, what happens is when you say to a girl that you're dating, can you put in three words what your deepest pain is? And that girl says, I feel rejected. Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody cares about my heart. And the guy says, could I care about that? Could I understand what you're struggling with? And I want to meet those three emotional needs and I want to resolve those three emotional issues. Now, if you're already married, some of you are saying, why didn't you come back 20 years ago when I got married or 40 years ago when I got married? I wish my husband would have cared about me. If he would have cared about my pain, I wouldn't be carrying my pain today. And that's exactly why we're doing this. Because what happens is these couples are on honeymoons that are different emotionally than the people that have had premarital sex um, prior to their wedding. Now, what happens with a couple? Over the last 30 years, I took the time just to make a list of all the consequences couples experience if they initiate sex before marriage. And I just made a list. The next list, which you have in front of you, is a list where I went to the Bible and said, what are the consequences if a guy or a gal are involved in pornography, if a person's involved in adultery, and we're gonna talk about that list second. But let's just talk about premarital sex. When two people get involved sexually before marriage, whether they defraud each other, which means they're arousing each other, or whether they have sex before marriage, what happens is they experience guilt. It doesn't make any difference if a person's a Christian or a non-Christian, everybody experiences guilt. Everybody knows that they shouldn't be doing it. That leads to starting to blame each other. That leads to conflict where they start fighting with each other. It's not difficult to watch a couple dating because when they start pulling apart and they start fighting, you know they're defrauding each other, having sex with each other before marriage. That leads to rejecting each other. So the guy rejects the girl, the girl rejects the guy. And emotionally, they start distancing themselves from each other. That leads to loss of sympathy to one another. The girl pulls her heart away, the guy pulls his heart away, and now we don't have love in the relationship. That leads to lack of respect, where the girl loses respect for the guy and the guy loses respect for the girl. That leads to no desire to be together. The girl doesn't want to be with a guy, the guy doesn't want to be with a girl. And that leads to loss of communication. 
where they can't talk with each other. Now, before they got involved sexually, they talked nonstop because they enjoyed being with each other, talking with each other. But as soon as you initiate sex, all of a sudden two people stop talking. What happens is, and if you look at the chart behind me, I have a description of two. A couple that gets involved dating for six months, and then they begin arousing each other, defrauding each other. Six months later, they begin having sex. Six months later, they get married. They're going to have 80% of these 17 consequences. You say, how do you know that? Because when people come in and say, yes, we did have premarital sex, I show them this list. And I said, check off all the ones you experienced. They'll check off 80% of this list, and we'll go through the rest in just a minute. What happens is the day of their wedding, they have 80% of this list. It's no wonder couples struggle. But what if we go down here? A couple begins dating and they emotionally connect and spiritually connect for the two, two and a half years they're dating. And then they initiate the physical relationship after they get married. The foundation is emotional connection. The foundation is spiritual connection. A wife will never block sex if she's feeling loved. A wife will open her heart. They won't stop communicating. They will enjoy visiting together, being together, because the physical relationship is not the core. But if you have the top, everything is about sex. Now, if a couple's premarily involved and they come into my office 20 years later, they say to me, John, we can't talk. And I go back and look for the cause. They only had six months where they communicated. Once they initiated the physical relationship and they're dating, everything was about sex. Now, if everything is about sex, what happens is a girl, a wife, and a marriage says, you just want sex, you don't care about me because there's no emotional connection. There's no spiritual connection. All there is is a sexual connection. And God never designed marriage merely to be about sex, and that's all. Because if it is only about sex and marriage and there's no caring about each other, no emotional connection, no spiritual connection, what happens is the relationship deteriorates and two people walk with each other. So my recommendation to couples is basically to begin dating and begin understanding each other's emotional need, caring about that need, opening your heart to that person. There's nothing sexual about that. You're not taking advantage of the other person. You're seeing if you can love each other, if you can care about each other, if you can understand the other person, and if you can meet their deepest emotional need, if you can care about their deepest emotional pain. Now, when I do this presentation, couples that have been married for a long time say to me, John, why didn't I know about this when I got married? I wish my husband would have cared about me. I wish my husband would have taken the time to understand my pain and care about it. But that never happened. A number of years ago, a girl came to my office with her fiancé. She was really scared because she'd really been messed up by a dominant, perfectionistic, angry, depressed mother. 
And she emotionally knew that she'd been messed up and she was scared that she was going to do the same thing her mother did with her boyfriend. And she didn't want to say yes to getting married. Emotionally, she said to her boyfriend, I will only say yes to marry you if you go see John Regeer. So here they show up in my office. She never told her boyfriend how bad her home was. She was scared he was going to run if she ever, he ever found out about her past. They were in my office and I had her make a list of all of her pain words. Zero to ten as we talked about the other night. She couldn't even write the numbers down. She was in so much pain inside. And when she was in my office, I recognized the level of her pain and I said, do you mind if I lead you in a prayer to disconnect your pain? She had not only been emotionally damaged, but her mother would use scripture to attack her and she stopped praying when she was about 14. She's 19 now, dating this guy. What happens in my office is I lead her in a prayer, Jesus, my mom was a perfectionist, dominant, angry person who emotionally drained me. And she would emotionally attack me and destroy my heart. Jesus, what did that do to my heart? When I led her in a prayer, she got nothing and she started crying. I said, Jesus, would you show my boyfriend a picture of my heart damaged? And the boyfriend just paused for a minute and he says, I see a little girl in the corner all by herself. And Jesus is reaching out his hands to care about her, but she's scared of him. He started crying. He was a Mennonite guy, really a quiet guy. He started crying. She started continuing to cry. Jesus, how would you heal my heart from what my mom did? This was six months before their wedding. I showed Mike how to care about Naomi, and he began to care about her heart. He began to understand all of her pain. And he started connecting emotionally with her to care about her needs. Two years later, I was visiting with them and she said, I used to have all these pain words marked at 10. She says, I can only find three pain words because my husband has cared so much about my heart, I no longer feel my pain. And she says, all my friends after they got married, they couldn't stand to be with each other. When I was connected to my husband, I, when he started caring about me, I gave my heart to him. And we had so much fun, we just talked nonstop together. And she says, I didn't know marriage could be so much fun. But my girlfriends would say, how's your marriage? And she couldn't say it because if she said how, fun she, how much fun she was experiencing, they all got jealous of her. She actually had the worst childhood of all of them, but because her boyfriend cared, she lost her pain. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I shared earlier that everybody's got a problem. I shared that everybody has an emotional need. Everybody struggles with something, no exception. When you start caring about a person's emotional need and you start understanding and caring about another person's pain, they will open their heart to you eventually and they will connect. My desire is that every couple getting married would connect in the emotional relationship to care about each other's hearts. And if they can't care, we don't get married.
if you don't understand how to care about a girl, then I don't think you should get married. Because I have guys that come to me and they want to marry a girl and they're sympathetic at 1%. How many of you women would marry a guy if you knew he, you were going to experience 1% sympathy? Any takers? No one's going to marry a guy like that. But what if you had a guy who came to you and you responded to him because he started understanding your pain and he cared at 70%. And he showed you that he could love you, he could care about you, you'd never break up with him because he wants to care about your heart. The interesting thing is, whenever a couple begins the sexual relationship in dating, communication stops because the guy is only interested in getting alone with his girl to touch her and a girl wants to touch the guy and the relationship becomes sexual. The only problem is after they get married the guy just wants sex and the girl eventually says don't touch me I don't want you, I can't stand you and the relationship dies. That leads <clears throat> to loss of spiritual interest that leads to financial loss, and we'll talk about that in a minute. That leads to distrust and dishonesty. Whenever a couple is sexually involved before marriage, what happens is they have to lie to their parents, to other people. So what happens is once they get married, a husband's in pornography or committing adultery. He lies about that to his wife. And the dishonesty, the distrust before marriage goes into marriage. I've had numerous people come to me and says, John, uh, I can't trust my husband with his secretary. So one day I went home and I said to my wife, um, does it ever bother you that I'm at work with other, you know, there's other women at work that I'm working with, does that ever bother you? And she says, no. I said, why doesn't it bother you? It bothers other people. And she made an interesting statement. She says, I remember when I dated you, you and I established a standard and you were willing to hold that standard. She says, I trust you. I don't even think about it. The problem is if you're premaritally involved, what happens is you don't trust that spouse because you know that spouse doesn't have the strength to say no to moral temptation. That leads to developing an immoral pattern of sex and guilt leading to possible unfaithfulness later in marriage. Premarital sex is sex plus guilt. And those two are combined. What happens is once you get married, you have sex without guilt. Often a person can't respond to sex without guilt because they've gotten used to sex with guilt they can be aroused by committing adultery with the neighbor because that's sex and guilt. But they can't respond to sex by itself without guilt. And if a person is primarily involved, you initiate the fact that a person uh, responds to sex and guilt. That leads to an inability to respond sexually later in marriage. I'd like to make a statement. I have couples coming into my office and they have totally shut down in the physical relationship that God designed. There's always a sexual cause for why people lock up sexually. They can lock up because of sexual abuse, which we'll talk about tomorrow night. They can lock up because of uh, 
premarital sex they can lock up because the husband's in pornography and the wife is frustrated with that they can lock up for any sexual cause but I've never had a person lock up sexually because they were loved emotionally I've never had that happen if a husband genuinely loves his wife a wife will never lock up sexually on her so when you initiate the emotional connected relationship and the spiritual connection that becomes a foundation of a relationship what happens is a person can enjoy the physical relationship in marriage without um, blocking that relationship that leads to lack of emotional intimacy in a marriage when two people are frustrated with each other they emotionally pull away from each other and that blocks love that leads to immorality in the family in our generation a lot of couples um, began to um, uh, encourage their children to court courting was a reaction against the last generation of promiscuity from the 60s and 70s and 80s and parents that were involved in numerous premarital relationships made a decision I don't want my kids to be involved sexually so the pendulum went from this direction to that direction I'm not against courting and I'm not against dating but I am against parents that were immoral and they say to their children you can't be immoral yes I was but you can't um, it's interesting husbands or fathers that are in pornography are actually showing their kids how to be immoral and you say but my kids don't know I'm in pornography you'll be shocked at how smart children are children know when their father is lusting after other women children watch their father's eyes and it affects what a girl does because if a girl sees daddy lusting she knows that unless she dresses like the girl's daddy's looking at no guy will ever want her now let's reverse it what if a daddy emotionally connected to his wife and to his children to his daughters it's very slim that that daughter will ever have premarital sex you know why because she loves her daddy so much she would never want to hurt him and she knows that he would not want her to do that I shared Sunday morning that love is a very powerful tool and when a daddy emotionally connects to care about his daughter and a mother and dad care about their son they won't want to be involved immorally but if the parents are immoral what happens is it opens the door for immorality in the children that leads to receiving sexually transmitted diseases um, see if I can find the, the note here one in 14 girls has an STD a sexually transmitted disease one in four teen girls that's a scary thing when you think about it the next is to transfer of sexual abuse pain to the spouse it's interesting let's say that a girl is sexually abused and we'll talk about that tomorrow night 40% of girls are sexually abused 20% of guys let's say a girl is sexually abused at 14 
Then she meets this neat Christian guy and he has moral values and he chooses not to become involved primarily. And then they get married and they're involved sexually in a marriage which God designed. That pain in that girl's heart will be separated from her husband because that pain was created by another person over here separate from the person she's dating and her husband. But let's use a different scenario. Let's say that that same girl is sexually abused at 14, but then she dates a Christian guy and he gets involved sexually with her. She's going to transfer all the pain from that sexual abuse to her husband because he's doing the same thing to her that that guy did that sexually abused her. And the husband's going to say, why is my girlfriend or my wife later after marriage so angry with me? Well, it's because he actually did the same sinful act that the person who perpetrated sexual abuse did. When you look at these 17, remember I said anyone that's involved primarily will begin their relationship with 80% of that list. Now, I made that list because when I was growing up, I was told you shouldn't be involved primarily and I chose with my wife not to be involved primarily and I'm glad I made that decision. But I wanted young people to have a reason why they shouldn't. It's one thing to say don't do it. It's another thing to say if you are involved these are going to be the consequences you'll experience. And a person will look at this list and say I have a friend that's having sex with his boyfriend and I know they have at least 10 of those because I talked to my girlfriend. A pastor's son came in, his father made him come into my office and I showed him this list and um, he said to me, he said, I really don't want to quit being involved sexually with my girlfriend. Uh, I don't care what consequences I have. So I took this sheet of paper and I said, would you do something for me? He said, sure. I said, would you hand this to your girlfriend? He says, okay, I'll do that. The girlfriend looked at the sheet and she says, my girlfriend living with a boyfriend has 80% of that list. And she got scared. And she showed them to her girlfriend and they went to the justice of the peace and got married that day. And then she went back to her boyfriend and says, who gave this to you? We got to go and talk to him. So she drug him back into my office to work through their issues. And I explained these consequences to them. Now the purpose of this is not to attack a person. I want to help young people to have a neat relationship. And I'm going to make one more statement about this. The most important, or excuse me, every man desires to be emotionally connected to his girlfriend or wife more than anything else. Emotional connection is more important to a guy than anything else. In the last three years, I've asked 200 guys, if you had a choice of 30 minutes of seeing your wife's heart on her face, connecting with you, or you had a choice of 30 minutes of sex, which would you choose? I was shocked. We're taught that men just want sex. Women want to be loved. That's not true. Every man of the 200 said, I want to see my wife's heart, except two said, I'd like to have both. Two out of 200. I was shocked. 
Men need emotional connection as much as women do. They want to see their wife's heart. Now, when a couple dates, a guy never marries a gal unless she opens her heart. And when a woman opens her heart, you see Christmas lights on her face. She lights up, she gets all excited. Now, all of you guys that got married or are married, you remember that, don't you? You remember the night it happened where you were open with her and she got all excited about you. Okay, that's what drew you into a relationship where you said, I want to marry this girl. I want to see her heart open like that for the next 60 years. So you marry her. Okay, that's what I call emotional connection. Now I tell people, why shut that off when you get married? Let's connect emotionally every day for 70 years. That's what God designed. Now God designed sex to be within the marriage relationship and when two people emotionally connect, sex is the most um, fun experience you can ever imagine. But sex, when it's violated, becomes the most painful thing. A woman that's sexually abused carries pain from that. But when sex is done within God's perimeters, it becomes very, very beautiful. Now let's go to the next topic. I took the time a number of years ago to list all the consequences, and there are 12 of them, of immoral activity. And we'll start at the bottom of the sheet, and you have that in front of you. Anyone who's immoral will justify their actions. They will defend themselves. What's wrong with lusting? Didn't God make women beautiful? So what's wrong with looking at them? Every person either acknowledges immoral sin or justifies it. There's no middle ground. When you justify it, you have to defend what you're doing. What's wrong with pornography? Nobody is being hurt by what I do when I look on the computer. That's justification. Secondly, everyone who's immoral learns to lie. They're deceptive, they're deceitful. One of the most difficult problems in a marriage relationship is if you can't trust your spouse. So you have a husband who's lying and you say, where were you last night when you left work? Oh, I just stopped and got a Coke. No, he didn't stop and get a Coke. He stopped to look at pornography. But he won't tell you that, he's deceptive. Every person that's immoral lies, and that produces a marriage where you can't trust each other. That leads to restitution not acceptable. You can't pay for moral sin, Proverbs 6.35 says. So if a husband commits adultery, there's no amount of money that can pay for that sin. I've offered wives a million dollars, if your husband gave you a million dollars, would you just forget his adultery? They get angry with me. What do you mean, forget his adultery? And then I show in this passage in Proverbs 6.35, you can't pay for moral sin. I've sat with over 200, probably 300 adultery cases. They're hard. Because someone got hurt because someone violated the marriage covenant in a marriage relationship. The interesting thing is, 
if a wife's husband commits adultery, he can't pay. She has to be willing to pay the emotional pain his sin caused her. And you say it's not fair, but it's the only way you can solve the problem. So she has to pay twice. Let's say that his adultery occurred over a six-month period. Not only was he distant for six months, focusing on some other woman, but now he cheated on her and she has to pay the emotional pain his sin caused her. It's no different than what Jesus did for us when he paid the penalty for our sin. He didn't deserve to pay it. And when I showed them this, and last night when we were talking about bitterness, I explained this, person has to understand forgiveness because the wife, if she is to be free from bitterness, has to pay the emotional pain her husband's sin caused her. That leads to financial loss. Proverbs 5.10 says that a person who's immoral will come to a piece of bread. What's the value of a piece of bread? 20 cents? I don't know, maybe 15 cents. I've sat in my office with pastors who committed adultery. They were making $45,000 20 years ago. 20 years ago, that was a good salary. I came into my office with six children for two weeks, and the guy only had 67 cents to his name. Had six children, went and lived with his brother in his basement. He lost everything. When a person comes into my office and says, I can't keep a job, I don't have any money, 70% of the time the cause is moral failure. Because the Bible says, if you violate my moral principles, you're going to come to a piece of bread. So if a person's addicted to pornography, God is not excited about that. He puts pressure by taking away your financial stability to get your attention. Okay, so there's going to be financial loss if a person's involved in immorality. When I was pastoring, a, a man came into my office and he said, John, I feel so guilty. Will you help me resolve my past? He had stolen $10,000 from 24 people in the community, a community like this, a small community, 3,000 people. He took a gate off of someone's pasture and put it on his pasture fence. He took a typewriter out of the grade school, broke a window, took the typewriter and stole it out of the grade school. 24 things like that. So I had him make a list of all those things and I said, I want you to take one at a time, go and apologize and pay for it back if they ask money. The first thing he had to do was go to his wife and say, I committed adultery when we were hippies in the 60s before we got saved with your three best friends. That was tough. He apologized to her ask her forgiveness. He went to all these people and two years later he walked in the church one Sunday morning he says, I finally finished. I said, what'd you finish? It was two years since you talked to me about it. I've paid everybody back. Eight years later, he was the second highest shelter agent in the state of Colorado. God honored him because he chose to be morally pure. Now don't ask me why when I get to heaven. I've got a lot of questions. God, why did you rob people financially if they were immoral? I have that question. 
But that's what the Bible says, and it works. I could sit here for an hour telling you story after story of story of people that were immoral and they lost money. They corrected their moral failure and all of a sudden they had a stable job. I can't figure out the connection, but God says that's a consequence. The next consequence is your reproach will not be blotted out. When I say President Clinton, within one second, every mind sitting in this room went to Lewinsky. The Bible says if you violate moral principles, you will be known by the moral principles you violated. People won't remember anything else about you, they'll just remember your immorality. That's in Proverbs 6.33. That leads to going astray in other areas. That leads to conflict in family relationships. Whenever a family is fighting within the family, I always ask, is one of the parents immoral? Is there immorality in one of the parents? Pornography, adultery, premarital? And almost always the answer is yes. David committed adultery and all of his children started fighting in the family. That leads to no desire to be together. It's interesting, when a couple gets premaritally involved, all of a sudden a girl who was in love with this guy, all of, a, all of a sudden can't stand her. David had a son who was attracted to a stepsister, and he couldn't even eat, he was so in love with her. So then he took advantage of her and raped her, then he couldn't stand being around her. Immorality has a tendency to cause a person to emotionally pull away. That leads to calamity. That leads to immorality in the family. I had a Canvas Crusade missionary come to me and he says, John, would you tell my son not to live with his girlfriend? And I said, I always start from the top. Would you and your wife come in? And I had him come in and I said, I'd like for you to make a list of all the immorality in your past. He looked at me and says, you don't have enough paper. I said, we have cases, we have reams, what do you want? He made a list, a huge list, of all the girls he had touched in 25 years of marriage. And I turned to him and I says, you actually showed your son how to be immoral. I'm not going to tell him to quit. You have to do that by your example. You have to confess the issues in your life. He confessed those issues, resolved his issues, apologized to his family, and within weeks his son separated from his girlfriend. That leads to God's reputation destroyed. Nathan said to David after his sin with Bathsheba, the enemies of God are laughing because of what you did. I started this message by saying that um, Christians have a greater problem morally than non-Christians. I wish that wasn't the case, and I'm not talking about this church. I'm not even talking about this community. This community may not even fit into that category, but I'm talking generally across the United States. Satan is all excited, you know why? Because Christians have a greater tendency to pornography than non-Christians do. 
Christians have a greater tendency to premarital sex than non-Christians do. And some people have asked me, John, why do you think this is true? I don't know. I just know that we have ceased being salt and light. We have ceased having absolute values that the Bible teaches. And that scares me. Josh McDowell spoke just recently um, in Charlotte, um, North Carolina, in a seminary. And he said the downfall of the church is three things. And the one thing he said was 40 years ago, 60% of Christians believed in absolutes. Abortion is wrong. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. And we had absolutes that we believed. Today, 96% of Christians sitting in a church don't believe in absolutes. Only 4% do. And he said, that's going to be the ruin of the church in the United States. That scares me because that's exactly what's happening. So I want you just to look at this list. And I would like for you in your own heart to make a commitment, God, I want to be about moral purity. I want to stand for what you want me to stand for. I don't want to lust. I don't want to be involved in pornography. I want to be pure in my thoughts. And whether you're married or whether you're not married, if you're dating, I want to understand how to find fulfillment in an appropriate, emotional, connected relationship with my boyfriend, girlfriend. If you're married, and we're going to talk about this after the break, guys that are involved in pornography have either not been loved, and they're using pornography to meet that emotional need for love, or they have pain in their past and they're covering their pain with pornography or they've been sexually abused or a combination of the three. Now we're going to talk about that after the break. And if you resolve that issue, you can come to freedom and I'm going to be sharing examples of guys who've come to freedom because they resolved those issues in their life. What are the characteristics of a person who will be immoral? I took the time just to study the book of Proverbs and there's six characteristics of an immoral person. These are the kind of guys, gals, you don't want to date because they will be the ones who will be immoral. They will have no convictions. They won't keep their promise. They lack wisdom. They're rebellious. They like to be away from home. And they use flattering statements. Those six things. It's interesting. When a guy's in pornography, he doesn't flatter his wife. Flattery is exaggerated praise. He flatters other women to get their attention. And when a guy, even in church, is involved in pornography, he will flatter other women. A person that's immoral likes to be away from home. When I take a person and resolve their moral failure, a guy wants to be at work till 11 o'clock at night. All of a sudden, after he comes through the week of cleaning, all of a sudden he wants to be at home at 5.05. Totally different attitude. He can't stand to be away from his wife. Those things all change. How do you resolve moral failure? A man came into my office who had been to 16 other counselors before he met me. They were all Christian counselors. And I said, I would like for you to make a list of all your moral failure in your past. 
And then I ask him a question. You've been to 16 Christian counselors. Has any counselor ever asked you to confess your past moral sin? He said, no. I said, no one's ever asked you to confess your sin? How do you resolve moral failure if you don't confess your past sin? He had a whole list of individuals that he was involved immorally with. And I had him list those and we confessed them and he came to freedom. You cannot resolve moral issues without repentance, without acknowledging it as sin. So I ask a person to list all their moral failure. And if you purchased, if you have this book with you, um, Biblical Concepts Counseling Workbook, we're on page 85. If you want to follow along, it's in that book. If you don't have it and you want to pick it up, it's at the table. I have a person list their moral failure. The first one is fantasy. Fantasy is not sin, the rest of Mar. Fantasy is where a woman feels so lonely because her husband's not connecting with her that she imagines being loved by somebody. Now everybody longs to be loved and if a person's not loved, often they imagine someone loving them or they read novels where someone is connecting to try and get some connection. That's not sin, but I want to disconnect that because in a marriage relationship, I want the husband to emotionally meet that need in his wife. And so I have them list whether they fantasize. Then you have lust, pornography, masturbation, homosexuality, oral and anal sex. Um, by the way, um, <clears throat> oral sex, um, 55% of young people are involved in oral sex today. And oral sex is what two men do together sexually. It's a homosexual act. And women are violated by that because guys look at pornography, see oral sex, go home and say, would you do this with me? And a wife is violated by that. 98% of women are repulsed by oral sex and often they will shut down and won't want their husbands to touch them because they've been violated by that. Then you have defrauding, premarital sex, adultery, um, and uh, the rest of the list. Um, and I have a person put the first names of everyone they were involved with in this list. Then I have them read the introductory page which is on the previous page and I just have them read that in my office. Then they go to the bottom of this sheet and they pray, Lord, acknowledge and renounce my sinful involvement in lust with other women and ask you to break that stronghold in my life. And they take one at a time and go all the way through this sheet. Then I have them read the concluding prayer. The concluding prayer has two aspects. The one is, um, relates to giving ground to the enemy. Some pornography is tied to witchcraft. And about 70% of guys that are addicted to pornography, they can't stop it because the enemy is connected to it and we have to break that connection. Jesus, is there an enemy connected to my pornography, my prostitution? The answer is yes. Jesus, would you ask the enemy to leave? Um, would you judge that enemy where you want him to be judged? The second aspect of that prayer that's important is Jesus, can I forgive myself for what I did? Some people have had an abortion. They can't forgive themselves for taking the life of a little child. 
And I listen as they pray through those. If they stumble on either one of those, that's an indication there's a, there's a problem there that needs to be resolved. Then I ask them um, to close their eyes and I lead them in three prayer and three uh, statements. Jesus, is there any other moral failure? What I do that, when I do that, I'm allowing the Spirit of God to prompt anything they've forgotten. Secondly, Jesus, is there an enemy connected to my moral failure? And then, Jesus, if everything is clean, would you prompt clean? Now, why do I do that third one? When I'm working, for example, with a guy, leading him in a prayer to clean up all of his moral failure, his wife's sitting in the next chair, and she is watching him intently. Is he going to be honest in confessing his pornography, his adultery, whatever there is? Or is he going to play a game with John? If he smirks, she knows he's playing a game and she will get intensely angry. If she sees him stop in the middle of his prayer and say, I can't believe I did so much stuff here. This is horrible. I wonder if my wife can even forgive me. And he burst in tears. You know what his wife says? Yes. Finally he got this figured out. And her heart opens within a second and she wants to connect with him. Now it goes either way when you go through this in your office. How do you remain in moral freedom? The first step is to confess your sin. The second step is to get emotional connection between a husband and wife, and we'll talk about that after the break. The third is to get them in an accountable relationship. And the accountable relationship, well, let's back up. Um, the third thing is to um, give them a scripture and a prayer that they put on a three by five card that whenever they're tempted, they go back, I am a child of God and I desire that each thought and desire that I have would please Christ and bring security to my wife. I renounce the enemy's desire to place thoughts and desires within that lead to lustful desires causing guilt, enslavement to lust, and insecurity with my wife. I choose to submit to God's desire to yield every thought and desire to the control of Jesus Christ, finding fulfillment and emotional intimacy with my wife. And then I have them quote, Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman to lust after her in my heart. That three by five card is stuck in their pocket. If they're tempted, they have four seconds to take it out. Then I put them into an accountable relationship where a person asks them once a week, have you had thoughts more than four seconds at a time that were lustful in nature? If yes, how long did those thoughts go? If they went six seconds, to go two hours. You have to understand when a person lusts or when a person is on pornography, if the average person watches 104 hours of pornography a year, like I shared earlier, they're going to be spending sometimes 45 minutes, two hours lusting when they come into my office. Now, no wife gets excited about that. I want to break that. So when we confess that, and after the break, we're going to show you how to get an emotional connection, which is probably the most important aspect. And then I give them, when they're tempted, this prayer, and they have an accountable person. What happens is they can come to freedom. 
Now, after the break, I'm going to talk about how do you actually break a moral addiction. And that's very important because over the last 35 years, I've been praying, God, would you give me wisdom to know how to help people that are addicted to, to pornography, to homosexual desire, whatever the problem is. And it's interesting, I started just praying and looking and, and going case after case until I found a pattern that worked. And after the break, we're going to identify that pattern and show you how do you as a wife connect with a husband to actually understand what's happening inside of his heart to help him come to freedom from these addictions. Um, I'd like to just encourage you that every issue spiritually God has an answer for. Some of you may be struggling with a moral addiction. I just want to encourage you that there's a solution to this problem. And that solution is in the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging that to Him, confessing it, and it is focused on building an emotional connected relationship with your spouse or with another person that cares about you. And when you do that, you can be released from that desire and from those thoughts. And in the second half, we're going to go through how do you actually do that? And I'm going to give examples of how that actually works. Thank you very much. I'll turn it back to Pastor. As you know, as we've talked about earlier, um, everything that goes on um, here is, is free. Uh, there, there's no cost, but we do take a, a love offering for John and for those who work with John because of just the time commitment and everything that they're doing. So this time we're going to uh, take that, that love offering. And so uh, we just ask that as you feel led to give, that you would just give as the Holy Spirit uh, leads you. So let's take a prayer for that and we'll do that at this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we just thank you so much for this evening that you've given us. We thank you for the direction of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we just continue with this evening, Lord, um, that we would just be overwhelmed by who you are and the love that you have for us. That in the midst of these things that we're talking about, the midst of the heaviness and, and all of this, Lord, that is, as John mentioned, Lord, um, you can set us free. And we see in the scriptures that all things are possible. Uh, from you. And so we thank you uh, for that promise. And we just ask that you would overwhelm us, Lord, with the next session once again. Lord, as we come before you uh, for this time of offering, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just speak to us and that as we uh, give uh, and those who give, uh, that we would give as you lead us, Lord, so that you would be glorified through our gift and the meditations of our hearts. And we just uh, thank you now uh, for this evening. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
like everyone to be back at 8.05. We're going to start at 8.05 sharp. And also, too, once again, uh, just ask everybody move to the front. We want to be as far as to the front as we can for the second session. So God bless you. Uh, get a drink, uh, do whatever, and be back at 8.05.